Chapter 1 of My Experiences in a Lunatic Asylum This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carol Cotter. MirloTranslations.com My Experiences in a Lunatic Asylum by Herman Charles Merivale Chapter 1 It's a mad world, my masters. I suppose that the motto I have affixed to the first chapter of the brief history of a singular personal experience is by this time an accepted axiom. Was it in one of Mr. Sala's columns of gossip that I was reading the other day of the man of the pen who commented upon the imprisonment in an asylum of a brother of his craft merely by saying, what a fool he must be, for years I have been as mad as he, only I took care never to say so. There are odd corners in the brains of most of us, filled with queer fancies, which are as well kept out of sight. Eccentricities, I suppose they may be called. The man who is so concentric as to be innocent of peculiarities is a companion of a dull sort. But heaven help us all when such things may be called and treated as madness. For if all of us were used according to our deserts in that way, who should escape the modern substitutes for whipping? England would not contain the asylums that should be constructed, and might go far to deserve the gravedigger's description of her for Hamlet's benefit. There the men are as mad as he. Let me go a step further. There are few of us, perhaps, who have not seen something in our lives of the strange nervous disorders which have been generalized as hypochondria, which are, in fact, I think, the different outcomes of a common affection, temporary exhaustion of brain. Beyond a certain point it becomes delirium, the wandering of weakness which is so closely connected with many forms of illness, both in the beginning and during the course and recovery. When the victims of delirium may be added to the eccentric members of society, when at any moment the certificates of any two doctors who may be utter strangers to the patient acting under the instructions of friends who are frightened and perplexed, perhaps, and try to believe that they are doing for the best, I leave out of consideration here the baser motives which, it is to be feared, come sometimes into play, may condemn him to the worst form of false imprisonment, the death in life of a lunatic asylum, at a time when he is himself practically unconscious. Who is there amongst us who can for a moment believe himself safe? Death in life, did I say? It is worse, for it is a life in life, worse than any conceivable form of death. The sights and sounds through which one has to live can never be forgotten by him who has lived through them, but will haunt him ever and always. Never let next friends persuade themselves that they are doing for the best for him for whom they so do. For themselves they may think that they are. For him they cannot possibly do worse. Every nerve should be strained to save a man from that fate, if it be humanly possible, aye, even if he be mad indeed. For while there is life there is hope, till that step has been taken. When it has, I verily believe that hope is reduced to its smallest. For the personal experience which I have to tell has taught me this that the man who comes sane and safe 
out of the hands of mad doctors and warders with all the wonderful network of complications which by commissioners certificates and heaven knows what our law has woven round the unlucky victim in the worst of all its various aberrations is very sane indeed and very safe too happily his lines afterwards are not altogether pleasant the curious looks and whispers the first meetings with old friends the general anxiety that he should not excite himself which he may be better excused for doing than most people perhaps magnified no doubt by his own natural sensitiveness are difficult in their way he does not mind them much is amused by them at times for with the strong sense of right on one side conflict is rather pleasant than not to the well-balanced soul but the thread of life and work and duty has been rudely broken by the shock and has to be knit again under great drawbacks it can be done though and one starts again the wiser and the better man it is no bad thing to have part of one's work and duty so clearly pointed out as this of mine when this evil question is being stirred to its depths as it is now, every contribution of personal experience is valuable. It is not for me to suggest schemes of reform, as it is the fashion to ask critics to do, but for those who are paid to do that work rightly and earnestly, or who choose to undertake to legislate for us. Nor have I any advice to offer them except the advice of Hamlet oh reform it altogether the system is radically wrong all through under which such wrong is possible and i believe it all the more because it seems to me without reasonable excuse madness is the most terrible of all visitations but also probably for that very reason the most unmistakable and in spite of doctors and lawyers and the whole artillery of organized humbug I have deduced another lesson from this hard experience of mine. I do not believe that there is any mistaking a madman when you see him. The especial experience which I have to tell has nothing especially painful, and is perhaps none the worse for that. I have nothing to write of dark rooms or straight waistcoats or whippings, or to reveal such secrets of the prison-house as will make each particular hair to stand on end by the telling. My lines were cast in pleasant places. The private asylum in which I was confined for many months, which in the retrospect seemed like one dreary dream, is, I believe, highly recommended by Her Majesty's Commissioners as a delightful sanitary resort, quite a place to spend a happy life. During those months I had the advantage of living in a castellated mansion, in one of the prettiest parts of England, which I shall hate to my dying day, with a constant variety of attendants, who honoured me by sleeping in my room, sometimes as many as three at a time. I was dying in delirium and prostration, simply, and wasted to a shadow, consequently voted violent as the best way out of it with carriages to take me out for drives, closed upon wet days, open on fine, with cricket and bowls and archery for the summer, and a pack of harriers to follow across country in the winter, with the head of the establishment who lived in a sweet little cottage with his family, 
to give me five o'clock tea on the Sundays, with five reflections a day whereof to partake, with my fellow lunatics, if so disposed, in my private sitting-room when I could not stand it, with a private chapel for morning prayers or Sunday service, the same companions and attendants for a congregation, and some visitors who would come to look at us, with little evening parties for whist or music amongst ourselves, and a casual conjurer or entertainer from town to distract us sometimes for an evening, with an occasional relative to come and see me, beg me not to get excited, and depart as soon as possible. What more could man desire? As I look at this last sentence of mine, it reads like an advertisement. Stay, I had forgotten the medicine. They did not give me very much of it, I suppose, or I should not be alive. Indeed, it seemed to me that the general principle was to give it when one asked for it, and pretty much what one asked for. When I got unusually weak and delirious, a good strong dose on the violent theory, homeopathy, I suppose, from a new point of view, was enough literally to reduce me to reason. For then I became too weak to speak, and the matter ended for a time. All this bears so fair an outside that it seems difficult to quarrel with it. Yet the life that it concealed was inconceivably terrible. My head was full of the weakest, the most varying, the most wandering fancies, the fancies of sheer and long-continued exhaustion. These parties, games, entertainments, meals, without a friend's face near me, without hope, wish or volition, with the shouts and cries of the really violent to wake me sometimes at night, with every form of personal affliction to haunt and mock and yet companion me by day, with poor fellows playing all sorts of strange antics round me, herded together anyhow or nohow, with or without private rooms of their own, more, I am afraid, in proportion as their friends could or would pay for them or not, on the footing of first-class patients than on any other intelligible principle. With death in the house every now and then, falling suddenly and terribly on one of these unhappy outcasts from some unsuspected malady within, which they could not explain, spoken of in whispers and hushed up and forgotten as soon as might be, with the warders, attendants if you like it better, playing their rough horseplay all over the great house, the Philistines making sport of the poor helpless Samsons, and varying their amusements by coarse and gross language which made the chilled blood run colder. The story makes me shrink in the telling, and almost regret that I have undertaken to tell it. But the evil wants cautery to the very core, and I believe that every story of the kind should be told. To me, personally, death was very near indeed in that house, more than once, from the most complete and absolute exhaustion of brain. I felt it at the time as I have known it since. Death in utter solitude, save for the warders by my side, whose duty it was, for they interpreted it as such, some of them, to hold me down and jump upon me or kneel on my breastbone if I turned round or uttered any wandering words in bed. When I was really dying, happily, I was too weak for movement or for word. 
and there is no stranger comment on the strange nature of the great and common mystery than the fact that in those supreme moments, unconscious of all else, I felt consciously and intensely happy, happier than I have ever felt, perhaps, in all my life. But I had to live, and I did. And so sound was the brain in all its weakness that I have hardly forgotten a single detail of my life in that place, scarcely even any of the vague and wandering fancies that possessed the starved head. So vague and wandering that, had I told one-fourth of them to the doctor, to whom I told, on the principle of Mr. Salah's friends, far too many, all Bedlam itself had not been held more mad than I. What I call fancies, they call delusions. And as such, I believe that they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Commissioners of Lunacy, for we know with what parental care these shameful things are done. Mr. Dillwyn and others have been doing their best of late to stir the public mind upon this matter, and some recent reports in the newspapers may have materially helped them. But the Home Secretary, I see, has gracefully deferred inquiry to the more convenient season which, from the time of Felix downwards, has been found difficult to secure again. It is easier, probably, to make a great flourish of fireworks in the way of foreign politics, and with much blowing of the trumpet to restore Great Britain to her former post among the nations, which some of us could never see how or when she had forfeited, and the very deference paid her in this Cyprian business seems to show that she had not, than to deal with a home problem like this, which falls so fatally within the province of our old friend the Circumlocution Office, and involves so great a variety of British interests of a peculiar and individual kind. Interests, did I say? Indeed it does, for it involves the liberties and lives of every one of us. It is all very well to plume ourselves upon our charters and our immunities and to bless those northern stars of ours that we are not as other men are. But the case of Vera Vasilovich, if that was her name, over which we jubilated so much at the expense of the benighted Russians, implies no greater danger than these evil lunacy laws. Once in their grasp, it is a hard matter, indeed, to get out of it. Cowards at the best, all of us, we are all of us afraid of the very name of madness more than of anything else, and in that fear lies the security of the present system against any attack that may be made upon it. There was a story the other day in an American newspaper of a lady who was spirited away by two scoundrels under the eyes of a whole party of travellers not one of whom raised a finger to protect her when the fellows had whispered it about that she was mad. This story may not have been true, but it was so singularly bendrovato that it very well may have been, and the mere possibility of its truth argues the necessity of keeping our eyes well open to the dangers in which we live. I suppose that we, most of us, rather laughed at Charles Reed's attack upon private asylums and quietly comforted ourselves with the reflection that in the 19th century, an expression which is used as a sort of talisman apparently like the Britain of Palmerston's day, 
such things are impossible. It requires a personal experience of their amenities, such as fell to my lot, seriously to believe that the adventures of a novel may be transferred to the pages of an article and be as strange and true. Villainous conspiracies for personal motives to set the lunacy law in motion are rare enough, I do not doubt, but the law favours them. What is not rare, I doubt even less, is the imprisonment in these fearful places of people who are perfectly sane but suffering from some temporary disorder of the brain, the most delicate and intricate part of all the mechanism, and the least understood. And if asylums are a sad necessity for the really mad, and even that I cannot help doubting, for from what I have seen I believe that they require a much more loving and more direct personal supervision than they can get, per people. For the nervous sufferers who are not mad they are terrible. The mad folk seemed to me happy enough on the whole, perhaps, but the suffering of those conscious of being sound of mind but very sick in body, yet treated as sound of body and sick in mind, the life of the sane among the mad, baffles description. They must have been driven mad there by the score. I know what it is for men, what must it be for women? Personally, I do not believe I could have borne another week of it, for heart and brain were strained almost to bursting. What would have happened to me I do not know, for I had lost all care for anything. Nor did the kindly doctor, under whose advice I was saved, in spite of fortune, I, and in spite of myself, pretend to know either. But he believes that I must have broken down utterly probably from softening of the brain. Sitting at my desk as I am sitting now, with the comforting pipe and jug of beer by my side, deadly poisons to me, both of them, I have often been assured, and with a profound and grateful sense of extreme physical well-being, it is difficult for me to believe that not so long ago I was pronounced to be suffering at different times or all at once from epilepsy, partial paralysis, fits, delusions, suicidal and homicidal mania, voices, a very professional and dangerous piece of humbug, of which I shall have more to say presently, visions, anglicate dreams, and the Lord knows what beside. As I was utterly prostrate from weakness, it reads like a dangerous complication, and I feel with pride that I may safely challenge Maria Jolly herself to the proof. It is something to have lived through all these maladies and to be engaged in replenishing the welcome beer glass, or, like the moralist of Thackeravian memory, alive and merry at year, dipping my nose in the Gascon wine. But it is not too much to say, and I speak again the wise words of my good friend and doctor, not my own, that there are at this present moment languishing in these places many men who might well have been rescued, may even be now, and a mob attack Bastille fashion upon the whole body of private asylums would, to my mind, do as much good as harm. Men who might well have been spared and saved to do good work in the world, but who now lie as helpless as the enchanter at the feet of Vivian in the hollow oak, lost to life and use and name and fame.
End of chapter 1